welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. Have you ever described yourself as lucky or said that it was just luck when you were talking about some point in your career trajectory or something about your research path? I think in all of the conversations I've had on this podcast series, just about everyone at some point has talked about luck or being lucky. It's really striking. And this is why I really wanted to talk with Professor Sarah Davies. Sarah is a professor of technosciences, materiality and digital cultures at the Department of Science and Technology Studies at University of Vienna. And her research has a focus on how science and society are co-produced. Of interest here in particular is her research on academic work and knowledge production. And the particular trigger for wanting to talk with her now was a recent paper that she and her co-authors published on luck and the situations of research and how accounting for luck might just be one way of disrupting our problematic rhetorics of excellence. This is such a rich conversation here and it's part two that where we continue with Sarah sharing more from both her research and her own lived experiences on topics like equity and valuing diverse work about care work in academia and who gets to do that work and how it gets accounted for, about creating collegial research cultures and the skills and conversations that we need to have in order to do this. And of course, we discuss luck. I'd really encourage you this time to follow up on some of the papers and links that are posted on the webpage. If you want to read more on the themes, they're they're great um, papers, really interesting And I'd also encourage you to go back and listen to part one of this conversation if you haven't caught that yet, where Sarah particularly talks about her um, academic mobility and cultural issues and precarity and so on. So just a short correction up front too. At one point during the conversation, I mentioned a previous podcast conversation that I had about Um, Glasgow Uni who are including collegiality as a specific evaluation here and I I mistakenly said Tanya as the name of the person uh, in the heat of the moment and I should have said Tanita Kasky and Elizabeth Adams and if you haven't heard that podcast I'll also include a link to that in the in the notes on the web page so I really hope you Enjoy this part two of my conversation with Sarah Davies. So getting to this now, one of the main triggers for wanting to talk to you, and and you've alluded to this as we've gone through, is in, in one of the strands in looking at science and society, you said, is the inside perspective of um, academics engaging in their scientific work and engagement with society. And you gave this brilliant inaugural lecture, finally, many years after starting here, that was called Knowing Through Digital Practices or How to Be an Academic. And you've also uh, 
had a project that I found really interesting about life in science and narrating career trajectories in research. Can you, you know, talk more generally or can you talk about what some of that, those strands have been and what some of the interesting insights, understandings of academic life career trajectories have been for you? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, first, thank you for saying that my lecture was brilliant. That's, it it I, was. I, I guess I'm insecure enough that um, that's wonderful, wonderful to hear. I, I'm sitting here shocked, but I shouldn't be because we all need to hear that. Um, yes, I mean, I, I actually have a theory, sorry, this is not answering your question at mm. all, but I have a theory that basically everyone is acad- uh, in academia is, is deep, deeply insecure I've, and I've, believe, yeah. believe the bad things that we, the, the critiques and, and not the, the, the praise. You're uh, right. You're right. We do because we get so much critique as well, don't mm. we? And we're always in the constructing of our stories of ourselves as successful academics, very sensitive to the critiques. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, it, it was. And is it online for people to look at? Because I will yes. make. Um, so there is a, a video that's online and the text is also available. Um, and yeah, I'm very happy to so share that. So I'll the definitely links. share that because I, I can tell you that it was really brilliant, really interesting. So I'd love you to share some of the, you know, some of the sort of interesting strands here yeah I mean I I guess one reason I'm really happy to hear that you liked the lecture was that it did for me um, roll together many many of the things that I'm I'm interested in Um, so the title knowing through digital practices really focuses on my interest in digital tools and technologies and how they are now entangled with epistemic practice how we know uh, within research um, but it also kind of links that to these questions of what does it mean to be an academic? What is expected of us? What are the conditions and constraints under which we we work? Uh, and I think that is, of course, relevant to anyone in academia, um, but also more generally because it also, I think, shapes how we can do research, how we can know um, and how we can navigate um, what are sometimes called the conditions of contemporary academia, where we have increasing competition, we have demands for mobility, we have um, this projectification, we have a market orientation in in both in teaching and and in research. Uh, so I've been interested for a long time how people negotiate that, and I guess also what are the equity issues associated um, with that. So who is able to embody this figure of the excellent or ideal academic and how can we think about other other possibilities um, so, so the lecture also talks a bit about um, valuing um, attributes and, and qualities that are essential to, to academic work but that are often rather invisible so care there's this notion of mm-hmm. academic housekeeping where we are just running things we are arranging things we are looking after each other um, the kind of maintenance work involved in just uh, keeping things going uh, yeah so so this question of how we can notice those those kinds of activities and and value them so notice and value and the things that you just talked about around care and the, and 
um, and academic housekeeping. Can you unpack them? Like, what's what what are the how, what are the things that you see that exemplify care, for example, in the work that you've in the research that you've done? Uh, now, I think actually of um, a study I carried out with some colleagues where we talked to to PIs, to principal investigators, about their ideas about responsibility. And this was a study that we went into thinking that they would talk a lot about responsibility to society. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was a moment where this notion of responsible research and innovation was, was very present. And what we found actually was that they talked about their primary responsibilities as much more oriented to, to looking after people, actually, uh, and the people around them. Uh, so people often spoke about caring for the group. This was a, the kind of structure that they were working in. They were natural scientists who had groups. So making sure that their students were, their PhD students were progressing, that they had the support that they need, that they felt looked after and not isolated, that they weren't paralyzed by the sense of competition or, or the struggles. Um, so really caring for people. Uh, in, in these rather mundane ways, you, you know, just checking in, seeing that people are okay, ordering pizza for lunch occasionally <laughs> as a social activity, things that, um, yeah, I guess will be familiar to, to many uh, and are often taken for granted. Um, and I think in these arguments about acknowledging care, it's about looking at who does that kind of work, who does this looking after, who does the social organizing, for instance, um, uh, and making sure that that is uh, appreciated. Um, interestingly, in this study, when we were talking to these PIs, they saw this care for people as very integrated with care for their science. So mm -hmm. there was a sense that if you wanted to do good science, you should be looking after your people in this in this way, that you couldn't really separate the epistemic production, the knowledge production, from from caring for people and it seems to me that this is something that is often not really visible or recognized um, for instance in how we apply for uh, for project funds um, so maybe there is a little bit of space to talk about human resources and who we will recruit um, but there's very little attention I think mostly to the question of well how what are our responsibilities then to these people how will we develop their careers after the three-year project is over? What will they get out of this experience? Um, what are our commitments to them uh, in terms of nurturing them or, or mentoring them? Uh, this is something that mostly I think we don't get talked, um, we don't get asked to talk about in, in funding applications. Um, yeah. So there could be a people and culture statement. Yeah, yeah. I, I've seen increasingly interest from at least some funders, some international funders, in the idea of research culture and asking people to make statements on research culture. So what kind of environment are you producing uh, and how will you be careful uh, about that? And I think this is one interesting development, but I, I think it's rather limited so far. Mm, mm, but so important. Yeah. You're also making me think that we give people money for pro projects and we just say, go ahead and do the science. And 
in the doing of it, we may be standing around a whiteboard in the setting up of the project team or whatever. We may stand around the whiteboard and do the work package allocation or the time framing or whatever. But we don't often have the explicit discussions together about the points that you just raised about our responsibilities, people, how people will be developed, you know, what they'll get out of it and how we can support them. Maybe they should also be part, maybe we should be, could we be training PIs more to set up good cultures and to, you know, how to do kickoffs of, of teams that are, are not just about the knowledge production in the objective sense, but in the who's doing it and how we do it together. Yeah, so, so training people, I think also encouraging uh, researchers to have more explicit conversations about what we expect of each other as we, we work together as teams or groups or departments. So how do we expect to relate to each other? How will we meet? I think also this relates to discussions about authorship. What are the expectations about authorship for publications? Uh, because people can often go in with very different imaginations, just as I think PhD students and supervisors can often go in with very different imaginations of how often will we meet, what kind of uh, what kind of things will we talk about, um, what does that relationship look like in terms of mentoring, or is it more just about the content? Um, so I think just trying at least, and I know from my own experience it's not always so easy, but but trying to have explicit discussions about um, how do we engage with each other. Mm, yeah. Yeah, discussions that we don't... I, I don't remember having too much during my development as a researcher in different projects and teams and places. No, no, and this is, I guess, exactly why it's a kind of anthropological experience because you're always learning what, what the other people yeah. think and what the expectations are. Yeah, and I'm just, I'm just thinking about the valuing of care and I'm thinking back to the conversation with... Um, at, Tanya and Elizabeth from Glasgow University where they added collegiality as, as an explicit criteria that people had to account for in promotion applications or, uh, or being employed. Is that also useful, something like that, or could we be doing more to value? What, what more could we do to value and, and foreground this sort of work? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um... I think, again, it's just about saying uh, how we relate to each other and, and, mm. and acknowledging the labor that goes, that goes into that. Um, so really talking about, uh, I suppose, what does collegiality look like in mm. practice? Um, what, what does it mean? Um, is it about giving feedback, for instance, when people ask for it or discussing ideas? And if so... I guess I think again it's it's also useful to be well what kind of feedback is that about support and encouragement is it really critical um yeah what what do we want mm. um and how can we yeah find languages for talking about that um in these kinds of uh, promotion procedures so I'm curious in the interviews or the the research that you did where you said these came out as as themes around care and academic housekeeping were there any patterns and you raised the question about who who engaged in this work and it being an equity issue did you see any patterns in your research about the who was doing this work no 
uh, <laughs> to be very straightforward, uh, because most of the work that I have done has been kind of rather small scale um, interview studies. So it's, I think, quite hard to uh, to extrapolate too much from that. Um, but other research, I think, has repeatedly shown that it is often women who yeah. do a lot of this yeah. this kind of labour, who do the invisible work of, you know, organising social events, for instance, mm. or taking notes in a meeting. Um, so I think that is that is clear that it's often gendered. And I think also it requires a kind of quite explicit, again, explicit um, discussion and prompting to, to readjust that because we are all socialized to behave in particular ways, whether that is to take up more space or less space. And, and it's not easy to escape though. Yeah. And also fighting sometimes our own intuition to want to be helpful. Yes. Where that intuition isn't shared by everyone so you end up doing more of that housekeeping work yeah 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 to uh, i mean uh yeah just to make things easier for people um Mm. to kind of smooth things Mm. over what what other sorts of themes came out in the work so one interesting thing um from some recent studies has been the way in which people spoke about luck Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, this has been a long, a long-term interest of mine, because in the interviews that I've done with scientists, you know, really over the last fifteen years, people have always spoken about luck, or they've always referred to luck as they have talked about research careers. Uh, and this has been kind of in the background. There's not really been enough to to write anything up about it uh, until a, a rather recent study where. Um, we asked people to talk about their their trajectories and to speak about what helped and hindered them. And there, again, this theme of luck came up. Uh, not, not only uh, people spoke a lot about the need for hard work and working long hours, uh, talking about 12-hour days. Uh, people talked about this, this idea of hard work and commitment. They also talked a lot about people having networks, having mentors, having uh, people who supported you in different ways. But then they also talked about luck uh, as, a, as a reason that they kind of ended up in the positions that they had. These were people in, in permanent positions at the profes- uh, professorial level. And this luck, I think, fascinated me because it was, it was so repeated um, by the, by those we have spoken to, uh, it took, of course, different forms. You could be lucky in um, kind of stumbling on a, a key research finding or area. You could be lucky in the people around you that you are fortunate in your supervisor, um, or you could be lucky in terms of getting funding. Uh, so it wasn't that this was a kind of a flat thing, a, a thing that was, that was similar for everybody. But I think just the fact that people speak so much about luck and being fortunate. I also, I have to say, I think I've also been lucky mm. um, and privileged um, as well. Um, so there are kind of structural aspects that can also reinforce luck. And I find this fascinating because it somehow disrupts this narrative of excellence um, mm. that is so dominant. Because when yeah. we talk about excellence, that is somehow really seen as not including luck and luckiness is seen as 
these people, these excellent researchers are, um, you know, superior in some way. They are above and beyond everybody else. And, um, yeah, it is, it is really their own work, their own labors that is, have got them, um, to a p- particular position. And I think luck disrupts this because it acknowledges that there is still happenstance and serendipity and, of course, privilege um, in shaping research careers. And that perhaps um, helps us to be humble, certainly, uh, and also to avoid putting people on pedestals. I I also think there continues to be... um, a degree of toxicity in academic culture, a degree of bullying, of poor behavior. Uh, And I think the notion of excellence and of particular standout individuals helps uh, reinforce this or helps us to continue because there is this idea we can't get rid of these people. They are untouchable Mm. because they are so special. They are so excellent. Mm. And if we say, well, they are, um, but they've also been a bit lucky and maybe there are others who have not been lucky, then it starts to enable perhaps a degree more of accountability. Mm. It's well, a long, long answer. Yeah, sorry. no, but there's so much in there. I, I'm, I just I had a conversation with a visitor we have uh, to our group at the moment um, from the UK, and we were just talking about some of our particular individual experiences of toxicity and bullying in in academic cultures. It's unfortunately and still a really common experience that shouldn't be there. And I hadn't thought about the way in which not accounting for luck in a way uh, enables this narrative of excellence to to prevail. I mean, because I've always just thought about it more in terms of our metrics and more managerial-driven approaches and counting what counts at the individual level yeah and and of course um I, I mean this is not a kind of it's not to say that everyone who is framed as excellent is is luck is lucky has been particularly lucky and it's not to say that those people are also the ones responsible for toxic behavior but i, I think it somehow feeds in because it disrupts it disrupts this idea of of who makes a good academic and how they've managed to to get there um and i think yeah with these toxic behaviors it is often reinforced by there being little oversight and little accountability that, that people can be in protected positions because of what they've achieved for instance it also goes back to not valuing the care work and the academic housekeeping work. Yeah, because they rarely make you stand out and they rarely let you um, help you to, to win prestigious yep. grants. And the fact that they're engaging in anti-care work in, in, in the sort of the, the, the huge personal, uh, psychological and physical health impacts on the individuals at the receiving end. Yes, yes. And, and of course... Um, these kinds of behaviours also produce care work for, for others, others, right? Yeah. Um, because then you have these kind of people who need to find ways to support each other, to protect each other. Yeah. I know that if I think back to um, a lot of the discussions that I've had on this podcast, I think if we did a word cloud, luck would be one of the biggest words <laughs> across all of the conversations. So just 
hearing people say that and knowing that I wanted to also talk to you about your luck, um, you know, the luck theme in the research because I found that really interesting. I did hear you say earlier in the conversation about you were fortunate enough um, in terms of when you were taking your next steps in some of your career moves and that sort of accounting for how we've ended up doing well. Yeah, I mean, to me, I definitely feel that I've been lucky. Um, I, I mean, it also, in the writing that I that I and my colleague, um, Bautau Pham, have done around this, we kind of look at some of the sociological and anthropological literature on luck. And there is, of course, a huge literature or um, a somewhat uh, substantial literature on luck, um, often which is unpacking... In, in academic context specifically no, or just no, generally? more generally. Yeah. So the way that people talk about luck or experience luck, and at least some of that is kind of deconstructing luck to say, okay, this person says that they are lucky, but actually mm. they were just white and male, for instance, yeah. and, and kind of got access to certain things because of that. And I think that's valuable and important and there is obviously an intersection between luck and privilege, like who is able to be lucky. Um, but I also still think it's important to take luck seriously and to take serendipity and happenstance seriously as something that does intervene into people's lives. Um, because when I think of my own luckiness, my own kind of uh, fortunate events that have led me to be where I am, there are, of course, moments where I got a grant uh, that there were many other people qualified for, I'm, I'm sure. There is a degree of, of happenstance in these kinds of processes, you know, whether review panel talking before or after lunch, for instance. Exactly, yes. Uh, something that can shape yeah. decisions. Um, and if I hadn't been lucky at that point, then, yeah, who knows where I would be. I could not be in academia. I could be doing something totally different. And so I, I think it's worth... You know, while it's good to deconstruct luck and talk of luck, I think it's also worth acknowledging it as something that is is real um, in people's experiences. Because it could also be that there could have been other happenstances. If that grant didn't get funded, there could have been other happenstances that you would then say it was luck. You were lucky that that grant didn't get funded because it opened up this other thing. There's is there a way in which it's part of our post hoc rationalization constructing of an of a coherent narrative account that we can live with like it's, and is there is there imposter that plays out in this as well in like it seems like a really complex issue yes i i do think this is important and, and this doesn't come through so much in in our study um, but there has been some other really nice work by a scholar called Loveday um, who looked at actually how early career researchers talked about their careers so far. Mm. And what um, they found was that people talked about luck when they were successful and they talked about personal responsibility when they failed. Mm. So when they didn't get the grant, that was their fault. That was their uh, lack of excellence. That, that was their problem. And if they did get the grant, for instance, that that was luck. And so mm. I think this is also definitely part of the way that we talk about our careers. Again, that we are very happy to to blame ourselves, to take on responsibility for the the negative things and the critique, whilst never really believing the the good things. The um, uh, 
what I've lost the word encouragement the support mm. um the praise yeah so is there anything more that you think that's useful or interesting to share around luck as a theme just not that I can yeah. think of yeah. is there anything around you know you've pointed to some of the structural factors around um you know white male or the privilege and that really good question that you ask about who is able to be lucky yeah i guess when i said that i was thinking uh for for instance again just to speak about my own trajectory you know when i was awarded funding or um or offered positions that involved mobility you know that that was partly that may have been luck in part but it was also my position my kind of my situation that enabled me to take up those those possibilities mm. um so i think there's also kind of intersections there between the situations that people are in and these experiences of luck and luckiness um because they do of course intersect if you were in a very uh i don't know for instance if you're in a very established research group already um and you uh, apply for something you may be lucky but it's probably also connected to your your networks um uh, or the support that you get from yeah, particular people yeah. um and it also throws into contrast this narrative of the the heroic excellent individual researcher and the 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 complex contexts in which good research is done Yeah, I mean this was one other very nice thing I think that came out of this this study. Uh you know, people talked about luck, but but this this was really as I say intertwined with this notion of hard work um and also this notion of people, mm. people as enablers uh and those we spoke to repeatedly said uh you you can't do science alone. You can't be this isolated person. You actually need quite some social skills. You need to be able to get on with people. You need to form collaborations with you know people all mm. over the world um, and you also again they spoke about people in the sense of family so you need uh many of those that I spoke to um had families who would move with them when they had traveled and this was one other way that that people were supporting your career mm. by agreeing to do that yes. being able to do that yeah yeah and this again is pointing to a whole other range of skills that we don't ask for train for or value in you know the 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 social skills to engage in those collaborations and do that work yeah because of course i i think it's not it's not only about um getting on with people it's it's also you know what does it mean to collaborate how how will you negotiate that and then again what responsibilities do you have there whether that's to to students or mm, colleagues mm. yeah the responsibilities um in just one final set of questions just in wrapping up I, i'm curious in moving to vienna and the opportunity to set up your own group and having the security of a permanent position and the depth of insights and understandings you've gained from being able to work in different cultures in different groups experience different forms of leadership different research cultures what have you done what have you taken from all of that and um to set up your own group like 
what are your practical insights, lessons, experiences? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and I should first acknowledge that I think I do it in a very flawed way. You know, I talk a big game because I've done all, <laughs> done all this research and I have many opinions. But of course, I also feel that I'm failing a lot um, and, and learning through through doing. Uh, I, I guess one thing that I and my colleagues have, have tried to do is, is make more explicit what we expect of each mm -hmm. other. Um, so what should collegiality look like? What do we aim for? And that is included, um, on the one hand, aiming for egalitarian relationships, a discussion, trying to be on, on eye level, so not relying on hierarchies. So that, that is one aspect, but at the same time, acknowledging that there are, of course, hierarchies, that it is, of course, different for me, who has a permanent position, um, and also who has more responsibilities. Um, so one thing that I have tried to do that that we have tried to do is to not overburden people with aspects of academic life that are outside their pay grade essentially um, so I may have particular struggles or issues I may be anxious about you know uh, things to do with the university the institution uh, funding but I do not think it is the responsibility of my colleagues to take on the emotional labor of making me feel better about those things. Yeah. Um, so really trying to say that uh, we have different positions and we have different responsibilities. Uh, and what I would hope is that my colleagues um, don't feel that they have to, to, to look after me um, or to look after the, you know, the responsibilities that fall within my purview that are much more long-term than their positions are. Uh, again, I think this is something that I I don't do very well, but it's at least been part of our conversations. Mm. I can share that struggle as well. And feedback. Um, and, and it's less about expectations, but I think trying to, to notice the work that goes into to being a group. Um, so who is setting up the Zoom connection when we are in an mm -hmm. online or hybrid space? who is booking rooms, uh, who is uh, checking in. Um, so, there's, yeah, there's less about expectations and more about noticing what, what labor is, is involved and, and who is doing that and maybe rethinking some of those expectations. Like if somebody is doing all of the, the admin, then maybe we can reshuffle some of those, those chores. Yeah. So seeing, valuing, acknowledging and, and critically uh, thinking about the sharing of, of that work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So trying to constantly be at least somewhat reflexive. Anything else around sort of, sort of setting up your own research culture and group? But I should just say, if you don't mind, I do want to really thank and acknowledge my colleagues that I work with very closely because all of these things I have that I've been speaking about, many of them I've, I've learned from discussions with them. Um, so I have to thank yeah, Bao Chao Fan, uh, Esther Dasefi, sorry Esther, I always say your surname wrong, uh, Andreas Schickewitz, Freddie Mora Gamez, uh, Kathleen Gregory, Ariadne Avkiren, Elaine Goldberg and uh, Nora Edera. Wonderful. So walking the talk, Sarah. Trying to anyway. Is there anything else that you want to say just in wrapping up? 
I don't think so. No, apart from thank you, of course. Thank you for having me and for such a nice conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And again, like just so much here to think about and take away and ponder upon. Thank you for your time, Sarah. Really appreciate it. So, wow, hey. I'm really curious to know how you reflect on this notion of luck now and luck in your own career and those around you. And Sarah's uh, call to take luck seriously really does challenge that narrative of the heroic, excellent individual researcher, as she says, and calls attention instead to the very complex environments in which good research gets done and and the role that luck can play in that. And part of those complex environments that Sarah also called attention to that I thought was really powerful was the social environment. And I love the way she talked about how um, we can't do good science alone. And that, that means not just needing good social skills, but it requires care work for one another. And, I, and she talked about care for people being really integrated with care for their science. And I find that quite, quite um, thought-provoking about the, the importance of creating cultures of care as critical enablers for one another to enable us all to do good science together. So maybe there are people that you work with that you can share this episode with and listen to together and to discuss about what this might mean for how you work together, how you take care work seriously, how you account for it, recognise it, celebrate it and recognise its importance in doing good science. You can find the summary notes, a transcript and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify and Google Podcasts and you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And I'm really hoping that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently and you can contribute to this by rating the podcast and also giving feedback And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues. Together, we can make change happen.